Hello, Club Manifesto listeners. Quick note here before we get to the show. Today's episode is just the first half of our relatively long and in-depth discussion about Martin Sostre's manifesto. And uh, for reasons that are simply too complicated to explain at the beginning of a podcast, we are breaking this episode into two parts. In part one, we talk about the author, and in part two, we get more into the manifesto itself. So if you enjoy today's episode, stay tuned next week when we will drop the next half of the conversation. All right, on with the show. to another episode of Club Manifesto, where we uh, read a manifesto, we talk about the person who wrote it, we try to figure out what they were trying to say. Uh, my name is Joe, I'm joined as always by Sos, hello Sos. Hello. Today we are discussing a document titled uh, The New Prisoner, written by an illustrious jailhouse lawyer and prisoner rights advocate named Martin Sostre, uh, who is known for successfully fighting a number of legal cases in the 1960s in New York that helped establish a number of rights for inmates there, uh, including right to free exercise of religion, political expression, access to some literature, um, you know, basic uh, human rights established uh, in a way for prisoners in New York. But really, that was kind of his early work. Uh, the Manifesto was actually written in, I think, what you could reasonably call Sostre's next phase, where he sort of became more disinterested in those piecemeal legal reforms, even though he had been so successful, actually, in establishing some of those reforms. He ended up publishing this document, The New Prisoner, in 1973. And in this thing, he envisions essentially the emergence of a new group of politically conscious prisoners that would lead a revolutionary armed struggle 
to overthrow uh, the racist and capitalist order in the United States. Um, you know, as far as we know, he actually did not call this thing, this article, a manifesto. But I think it has pretty much all of the positive attributes of manifestos that we've identified throughout the last 15 or so episodes of uh, this podcast. And so, you know, for the sake of the show, we will call this Martin Sostre's manifesto. You know, 15 episodes, that's uh, 15 manifestos. Not a lot of people can say they've read that many. I think we're experts on the subject, Joe. Uh, if anyone wants any uh, consultation, uh, email mm -hmm. us at clubmanifesto420 at com, and we'll send you our rates. But I think we're pros yeah. now. Yeah, if you have any manifesto-related consultation work, <laughs> uh, feel free to hit us up. Yes, and, and we uh, uh, did get uh, one email that it took me uh, forever to respond to. So thank you uh, to, to our <laughs> listener who, if I was, uh, had any, any professionalism in me, I would remember who it was. I'm sorry, but it's probably better not to say. <laughs> anyway, thank you for emailing us. Send us more. Send us more emails about manifestos. That was a great one. And mm -hmm. we'll check the email more often. Uh, I promise. Uh, today, yeah, we're we're not we're not gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my promises are, aren't worth anything. No. The um, today is a classic episode. Just Sos and Joe, Joe and Sos. No third wheel stealing the spotlight. No guest. Mm -hmm. You, the listener, get uncut, unadulterated hot takes on controversial texts. Unadulterated uh, hot takes. <laughs> we are on our best behavior when we have guests, but now it's just the two of us on the program, and I feel like we can uh, really let our hair down, say what we really think, you know, and 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 the listeners get to get to benefit. Oh yeah, and, uh, it's all for the benefit of the listeners. Uh, absolutely, and Joe. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when people think black nationalism, they think Club <laughs> Manifesto. <laughs> when people really want to know what's happening on the ground when it comes to black activism, mm -hmm. the first place they look, or they should look, is Joe and So's. <laughs> That's, uh, uh, yeah. So, dear listeners, we've been holding yeah. back our expertise on this subject until now. Uh, you're about to get the hottest of takes uh, on this episode. Oh, yeah. Well... Yeah, much like our our previous work on our other areas of expertise, like uh, furries and uh, <laughs> tech perverts and uh, <laughs> rainbow people and homicidal policemen and whatever, uh, this is another another area where we uh, we have a lot of uh, on the ground knowledge to to share. Um, okay, so I guess we'll just say how we kind of happened on this manifesto because this was really not on my radar uh no one had really suggested this to me but i did just sort of happen on it at a zine fest uh that i went to uh with pam a little while back and it was i, I don't know really who's distributing it at this point there were a couple of prisoner rights related groups that were at this thing and i, I it's this had just been put out for free uh it seems to have perhaps been printed by the martin sostre institute there is like an institute named mm. after this guy even though uh as we might discuss a bit 
a lot of details of his life have not been very well documented, despite him being a very influential, important, and honestly pretty fascinating figure. He There's a lot of stuff about his life that's not really very well documented. There's not, as far as we know, any great biography written of him. Uh, but there is this institute that's distributing this and ha- has like a little preamble explains like why it was significant i just thought it was kind of cool that they're still distributing what's essentially a law article law review article from 1973 mm. uh they're still printing this thing and uh putting it out for free at places like a, a zine fair and you know it is a shame that this there isn't more on uh martin sostre because he's a really fascinating figure as as we as as you alluded to mm-hmm. earlier so um martin ramirez sostre was uh, born on march 20th 1923 in harlem and he died on august 12 2015 so not not too long ago at the age of 92 both his parents were black puerto ricans his mother was a seamstress and a hat maker his father a merchant marine during the Great Depression, he was forced to drop out of school to help support his family. Just a note here, we'll be quoting extensively from a New York Times article titled Overlooked No More, Martin Sostre Who Reformed America's Prisons from His Cell by Alexandria Simmons as we go through uh, our, our bio and background on Martin Sostre. Like we said, there wasn't much out there on him. Yeah, I mean, that there... There is some stuff, but you have to kind of really dig around to find any kind of real chronology as to how how things happened. Um, One way or the other, so he's born in, what did you just say, 1923. He ends up in the Army when he's 19, so 1942. Um, But And he's in there for a while. Uh, He's eventually dishonorably discharged in 1946 uh according to him that was the result of some type of fight between like rival companies uh within the army and he was in some type of a fight uh resulted in a dishonorable discharge you know uh, i think his military service is especially sort of interesting because as we'll discuss later he kind of grew a certain fascination with the Viet Cong mm-hmm. um, a, as a as an opponent of, of the American military. And he really kind of identified with the struggle of the Viet Cong, uh, and that comes out in this manifesto a lot. Uh, so, so that's 1946. He's out of the military. He ends up in prison for the first time in 1952. He's arrested for possession of heroin, um, at, at some point, he like uh, flees to California, ends up captured, but he ends up in prison. Um, I don't think there's much dispute that he was probably guilty of like this possession charge. Maybe I, I saw it described in other places as selling drugs. I don't know. Um, but he's sentenced to 12 years in prison beginning in October of 1952. Uh, during After he's sentenced, he ends up serving time in a number of New York State prisons, including uh, the famous Attica prison uh, during the early 1960s, which, uh, if you know anything about uh, the Attica prison, I'm sure uh, being there in the 1960s was incredibly influential on his political development. Um, 
Attica, and I actually got this quote from a uh, judicial opinion written about one of these cases that Sostre was involved in as a litigant, um, but it says, Attica prison is a maximum security prison designed for the detention of only the most desperate criminals. That's the way that people were thinking of Attica at the time. And I just think it's kind of important to note that because Sostre was in prison for possession of drugs. You know, what, what mm. I think most people now think of as, uh, I mean, first of all, of course, a nonviolent offense, but also the type of thing that... Uh, there seems to be a growing number of people who think there should be no one in prison for simply possessing uh, a drug. You shouldn't be going to prison for long periods of time, certainly for that. But at that time, he was, you know, as a uh, a black Puerto Rican uh, prison inmate, was considered effectively one of the most desperate criminals and thus subject <laughs> to, you know, imprisonment at Attica. Um Allegedly, I, or or while he was there, he, he apparently embraced doctrines including uh, black Muslimism, black nationalism, uh, certain kind of like internationalism, even a bit of anarchism. Uh, some of his legal like litigation specifically involves the fact that he was a uh, a, a Muslim, a follower of Elijah Muhammad. At, at least for a time, and there was a, a lot of uh, debate during that time about what the rights of black Muslims should be in any prison system, uh, in large part because uh, people inside the prison system did not see it as a religion. They saw it as a, like a, a doctrine, a form of uh, encouraging racial hatred mm. and not, uh, not really a religion. Uh, so he, some of his like relig- some of his litigation, some of his uh, legal cases center on that that dispute. Um, so he's in prison the first time. He uh, he sort of studies the law. He becomes involved in these high profile legal battles. Um, we will discuss that a little bit more later. He's effectively a jailhouse lawyer, which um, for those who are you know uninitiated are basically like a inmates who spend a lot of time in the law library and learn enough that they can help file motions and uh, essentially educate others about their legal statuses, mm-hmm. legal situations. Um, Jail, jailhouse that, lawyer, my old job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, that, that position seems to be like... Not so. It starts out, and he's interested in the law, and then because he's interested in the law, he's persecuted further within prison, uh, which of course makes him only more and more interested in what his legal rights are. It's like a kind of a, a bit of a circle. Um, one of these federal court decisions, it's, it's called Sostre versus Rockefeller. Uh, it's a decision published in in 1970. The the judge, I guess you can kind of tell, became sort of fascinated. Or, or enraged, I guess, about Sostre's treatment within the prison and describes the way that he was repeatedly and arbitrarily sentenced to time in solitary confinement for long, long periods of time, like months and months that would clearly have serious uh, effects on your mental health uh, as well as your physical health. 
during this time, he was like stuck in there for 24 hours a day. He, in order for him to even do his one hour a day of recreation time that he was theoretically allowed, they were requiring him to do this uh, naked cavity search with, with that included like, like a rectal exam, and he was, you know, uh, understandably like refusing to do that. So he spent a good chunk of his time during a couple of different prison stints. Uh, basically in solitary confinement. Um, So he does this 12-year prison sentence from 1952 until October of 1964. He's released at that time. So during those 12 years, four of those years were in solitary confinement. And like I said, that is in large part because he was a a jailhouse lawyer. He's raising hell, basically, and the the warden is uh, retaliating by putting him in solitary. Uh, After that, he moved to Buffalo, New York, uh, and he took a job there. Um, initially, he took a job there with Be- uh, a company called Bethlehem Steel. Yeah, and putting him in solitary confinement for so long, you know, you might think, oh, there's th- he must have done something. There's a good reason for it. But uh, the only reasons given were very flimsy, like dust on his, uh, uh, on the on the on the bars on his cell, or papers being uh, strewn all yeah. over his cell, things like that. The old. The old offense of having dust on your prison cell bars. <laughs> Gotta uh, for anyone going to prison, remember to polish your cell bars, or else you'll be thrown in, yeah. into solitary jail, a place notoriously clean. <laughs> yeah. The um, so once he got out of jail, uh, he he got that job at Bethlehem Steel, and the regular paycheck enabled him to save enough money to open the Afro Asian bookshop. Uh, in the Cold Springs uh, neighborhood uh, that he was living in. Uh, the shop is thought to be one of the first black-owned radical bookstores in the entire United States. Sostre uh, uh, stocked the store with communist, anarchist, and black nationalist texts. A uh, perfect storm there of, uh, <laughs> of things to <laughs> piss people off. Uh, once... <laughs> Uh, he added jazz records to the mix. The store became a popular hangout for the city's young leftist population, both nascent black radicals and curious white college students as well. Sostra once wrote about his bookstore, I taught continually, giving out pamphlets free to those who had no money. Let them sit and read for hours in the store. Some would come back every day and read the same book until they finished it. This was the opportunity I had dreamed about to be able to help my people by increasing the political awareness of the youth. The bookstore only lasted a few years, sadly. In 1967, just three years after the store opened, racial tensions in Buffalo boiled over during what has been called the long, hot summer of 1967. By the end of June, many young black residents of Cold Springs, fed up with what they saw as structural inequality, police brutality, and a lack of economic opportunity, took to looting and rioting. Businesses had all but shut down, but the Afro-Asian bookshop remained open. Popular with the young and an object of scrutiny for police, Sostra would later uh, describe feeling targeted as a result of frequent visits from the police and FBI agents. 
And that bookshop he was running kind of reminded me of a of of a bookshop we had in Bloomington, Joe Boxcar uh, Books, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, people um, went in there and and read books all the time. It allowed uh, it was one of the few establishments that allowed homeless people in there, and uh, and and mm-hmm. it was a great place to to hang out. And it was also uh, frequently the target of like police. Uh, yes you know harassment if i understand correctly Mm -hmm. Uh, and there was always this like fight about whether or not they should be allowed to continue uh basically having homeless people in their (laughs) uh in their business uh how how dare that was yeah the polite society in bloomington was not uh pleased with that uh that issue or that uh policy of theirs Mm. um so Okay, so this, in terms of like chronology, he's he gets out of prison in 1964, in October of 1964. This is the summer of 1967, so less than three years later. And there's all this rioting. During the rioting, there's a tavern right next to his bookstore. It catches fire, uh, and I guess the, the firefighters... In, as they're putting out that fire, they basically wipe out his entire book inventory. They, they soak it uh, as they're putting out the neighboring fire. Sometime mm-hmm. after that, or in relationship to that, police accuse Sostre of making Molotov cocktails in the, the basement of his bookstore. I guess suggesting that was the cause of this fire. Um, and thus... Sostre and his co-worker uh, end up arrested at the bookstore. This is July 14th, 1967. Um, somehow in relationship to this, like, Molotov cocktail situation, which I guess is never actually the subject of a criminal charge. They just uh, maybe use that as a reason to uh, to sort of harass him or, or investigate. Uh, but they charge him... A, eventually with like narcotics riot arson and assault so like purposely uh starting the the next door place on fire i don't know basically rioting um later the sostre institute describes it this way since the state could not implicate sostre in any illegal political activity he was booked on contrived dope charges and brought before a white judge and an all-white jury where he was bound, gagged, and sentenced for 30 to 41 years. The prosecution's chief witness later recanted his testimony and admitted his involvement in the police frame-up. The arresting officer was indicted uh, later for stealing over $100,000 worth of heroin from the police laboratory. Uh, Basically, the the chief witness here is this arresting officer who... uh, is compromised or corrupt uh and the the long and short of it is that it's obviously a bullshit case uh and they're targeting this guy who is uh relatively influential Mm -hmm. in the community that is rioting and Uh, and the and it's important to point out the year to re uh, reiterate the year 1967 that this that this happens you know on on a previous episode uh we talked about the 1968 riots that that took place mm-hmm. uh, globally, right? The the kind of series of uprisings against against the system, against capitalism, basically. 
And uh, so things were really heated. You know, you open up uh, a radical bookstore, that's, that's enough to get... I mean, the, the bookstore in Bloomington was enough to get on the, on the authorities' uh, watch list. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine in, right before those, those global uprisings, you know, law enforcement was tense, mm-hmm. nervous... Uh, the system felt threatened, and opening up that kind of bookstore put put you on a very uh, nasty list of uh, people who were pro- prosecuted for bullshit charges. You know. Yeah, and I mean, if you read about Sostre's like treatment in jail, as well as uh, you know some of what he was writing at the time. I'm not saying that he was guilty of uh, making Molotov cocktails, but I don't think it's hard, that hard to imagine that he might have believed rioting to be a legitimate form of, of expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he, he might not necessarily have been uh, shedding a lot of tears for uh, the destruction of, of certain uh white businesses in the area or something i don't know but uh it's possible he was involved in some type of uh at least common sense would suggest he might have been involved at least in in activism around it if not directly involved in any kind of illegal activity and they were trying to shut shut him him down Mm -hmm. um so it also has at least been alleged that this prosecution this whole this his whole second case, basically the second case against Sostre after he gets arrested for drugs, puts in jail for twelve years, becomes a jailhouse lawyer, is out for three years, and now they've got another case on him. This was apparently part of COINTELPRO, uh, the FBI's COINTEL program, which um, you know we've dis- described, I think, before on the podcast, uh, but essentially was a series of covert projects. By the FBI, where they were surveilling and infiltrating and discrediting, uh, disrupting political organizations within the United States, uh, including a lot of black radical organizations. I mean, I guess it'd be surprising if COINTELPRO was not somehow involved with this type of a prosecution. Um, you know, they also targeted the Nation of Islam, which uh, I, I believe Sostri was for a time associated with, mm. as well as the Black Panther Party, MLK, you know. So. And COINTELPRO is is a shorthand for counterintelligence program. So this is like explicitly um, the U.S. government spying on its own people, an idea we're very comfortable with today, you know, but <laughs> I guess back then... It was, uh, this was at least one of the first big uh, reveals that, 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 that the yeah. American government was uh, targeting its own citizens uh, uh, in, in, in this way. And not just surveilling, but uh, actively seeking to discredit by, mm-hmm. uh, you know, making, creating situations where everyone becomes deeply suspicious of one another, yes. prosecuting people for bullshit claims i mean it was a a a psyop i guess um, yeah and and they and and it was like a a very effective one you know they also in addition to black radicals they went after uh you know uh the communist party socialists um and they really effectively this i mean it's incredible how well it worked you know it really did these Mm -hmm. these were like very popular movements that that people saw 
you know, they were controversial, but there was like a good chunk of the American population that saw these things as, 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 as like a good thing that was happening. But you know, mm-hmm. uh, after COINTELPRO, it not so much. Yeah, if it Ch- was at least part of I, what made that happen. Yeah. I believe Chase Bank uh, is the one that runs the official website on the MLK uh, archive. <laughs> so that just tells you where where everything ended up. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And who's Jesus who's Christ. who's writing the history is J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, yeah. Last time I checked. So, I, I I mean, just to be clear, I guess uh, I read in multiple places that this is believed to have been a COINTELPRO operation we never really there's I don't I couldn't find like proof of that um but Sostri was widely considered to be a political prisoner at this point in Mm -hmm. in this after this second uh uh the second arrest uh when he was sentenced to 30 to 41 years for this like drug slash arson situation so it's in this second uh term in prison Sostri continued to work as a jailhouse lawyer, regularly acting as legal counsel for other inmates. He was a plaintiff in two landmark legal cases involving prisoners' rights, Sostra v. Rockefeller, 1969, and Sostra v. Otis, 1967. According to Sostra, these decisions constituted, quote, a resounding defeat of the establishment who will now find it exceedingly difficult to torture with impunity the thousands of captive black and white political prisoners illegally held in their concentration camps. So, you know, he says that this was a resounding defeat for the establishment. And I think uh, that's, I think he kind of later thought that thought of that a little bit differently uh because in in this manifesto he describes the way in which even though these cases theoretically established rights for prisoners nevertheless those prisoners were that he was seeing day to day were having to constantly fight to uh get this you know right to free religious expression free political expression right to uh essentially read the types of political literature that they wanted to read. Uh, essentially, the wardens, uh, the people working for the, uh, the prison system, were ignoring the law, ignoring the mm. judicial decisions. Uh, and so I, I think it was probably a, uh, a, a sad and, and probably cynicism-making uh, you know, event for him to have worked so hard. I mean, he spent years and years uh, as he was the plaintiff in these cases, helping to establish that you can't just arbitrarily keep people in solitary confinement. You have to allow them to access certain political and, and governmental officials, etc. But then he saw what actually happens, which is if <laughs> even if there's some judge somewhere who says that, yeah, you've got this right to to read what you want to well good luck enforcing that right once you're in in the prison and it's the warden who controls everything in your life i mean this is going to be a common theme throughout this episode like the stuff that this guy is a hero for and fighting for when you look at it it's it's like it's disgusting you know it's like what is he fighting for to not be thrown into solitary confinement arbitrarily that's the big mm-hmm. victory not to 
I mean, basically all this like extremely dehumanizing treatment, not, you know, to be able to read a religious book. That's what he's fighting mm-hmm. for. Like later on, we'll get into other demands like clean food. Holy shit. What a, <laughs> what a revolutionary. He wants prisons to give like uh, a decent human treatment and, and, um, and sort of this, uh, 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 it, it kind of, he shed a lot of light uh, on on how inhumane prisons were and uh, continue to be. You know, like there, th- this is before the privatization of prisons and the explosion in the prison population in the United States. It's uh, mm-hmm. uh, th- this kind, the kind of atrocities that he's describing have multiplied uh, and 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 sort of become commonplace uh, like a hundredfold since the 1960s you know mm-hmm. yeah we imprisoned a lot of people back then but this was before really the age of mass incarceration mm-hmm. so uh i mean it is wild to think that this this stuff that he's talking about how how terrible and dehumanizing it is it is far far more prevalent far more prevalent than it was uh, at the time that he was writing. And this. and it's wild to think how how much worse prisoners would be treated now if he hadn't won cases like this. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's sort of like made the lives of many current prisoners more humane and tolerable. Uh, have you ever spent the night in jail? Well, I have. Have you ever ate that refried food? Yeah, you got so sick you don't know what to do Have you ever spent the night in jail? Well, I have And uh, while um, he was at the Greenhaven Correctional Facility in Dutchess County, New York, Sostra was put in uh, solitary confinement, and once again, he stood up for his rights, despite this kind of treatment. He refused to be, he, uh, he refused to cut his beard and would not submit to rectal examinations, resulting in more time in solitary. He was also punished when he tried to mail a document to his lawyer. He described his protest against rectal examinations as fighting to keep the last vis- vestige of his humanity. You know, this uh, uh, this kind of treatment kind of reminds me of um, Abu Ghraib. That was one of, in my coming of age, uh, when, when the Abu Ghraib atrocities were revealed during the second war in Iraq, it was... Um, you know, not much has changed uh, in the way Americans treat prisoners. And, like, what the fuck we think prison is for, anyway? Like, what the hell is supposed to happen in these institutions to begin with? What are we doing to people? What is the point mm-hmm. in, in, in treating people so inhumanely and traumatizing them a thousand times over before... Uh, they serve their sentence and, quote, pay their debt to society, whatever debt that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I mean, that practice of uh, 
essentially stripping people naked and performing what are effectively rectal examinations like that stuff is absolutely still present including for people who are arrested for uh, often minor crimes you know it is uh uh absolutely a thing that happens and i mean the effect of you know being subject to that especially if you were not previously aware that that was going to occur to you i mean it it's going to have the effect of really changing your understanding yeah. of uh the, of the law for sure which we will discuss he you know he i think he has a really clear-eyed view of what the law in fact is but it's it's not a there's nothing noble about it i guess and and we're talking so far about prisoners and how prisoners are treated. Uh, this kind of dehumanizing practice it, uh, goes, you know, throughout different all the layers of the of the criminal justice system. Like just to be arrested and processed, not convicted of anything, right? You you've not mm -hmm. been tried, you've not been convicted. There's been no evidence presented or collected yet right or it's being collected just to be booked and processed is a dehumanizing experience it's it's one that's filled mm -hmm. with uh, a, a lot of coercion a lot of confusion uh, a lot of abuse in, in many times without having been ever convicted of a crime not to mention the secret prisons within prisons like guantanamo mm -hmm. guantanamo like prisons within you know prisons on american soil that um mm -hmm that kind of uh keep people there without any charges you know uh, people literally people who are mistreated by the legal system are not even convicted of anything are are treated inhumanely mm -hmm. the whole the whole system yeah. is fucked yeah it's a institutionalized uh, violence uh, effectively against people um against a whole class of people essentially um okay so back to sostre let just a little bit of detail on the fact that he is this like well-respected jailhouse lawyer which again is somebody who is essentially representing in a way trying to represent the interests of other inmates uh by he's assisting with producing documents and that type of thing uh he is clearly as we read this it's obvious that he is like a, a very kind of brilliant person um, and thus was able to you know, go to the law library in the prison and pick up a lot about constitutional law and uh, and other, you know, the, the law of New York, et cetera, um, by just reading, uh, which is pretty incredible. Um, so he, he does at some point uh, with a few other inmates, they sue the warden at the Clinton a prison in New York uh, for, for their right to practice their religion, um, which I, I believe was... Uh, sort of Nation of Islam uh, stuff. Um, and it, it's like they're... It's a little complicated to say that he's exactly successful in some of these uh, because they're, some of the legal opinions are not like... Uh, I think it's possible to see why they might not have been totally transformational. He was being treated so terribly... Uh, he was they were not allowed to exercise their religion at all he was being arbitrarily thrown into solitary confinement for having dust on the bars of his cell when you have details like that in a legal case 
it can have the effect, I think, of actually making the rights secured within those opinions less substantial because it, it, it creates an opportunity to distinguish every future scenario by saying, well, it's not as bad as, you know, mm. sure, the court the court said that Sostre had the right to uh, not be arbitrarily thrown into uh, to solitary confinement. However, you know, uh, it, he was being treated so bad that if you just alter the treatment slightly, you can say, well, we're not actually doing what the, the, the prison system can say, we're not actually doing what the court condemned in, you know, Sostre versus Rockefeller. We're actually, uh, yeah. there's, there's a difference here. You know? at, at our prison, we don't do rectal exams. So, yeah, you can't read uh, the fucking Koran. You know, it's... it's... Or, yeah, <laughs> or we don't do rectal exams because uh, we don't ac- actually stick our hand up your ass. Uh, we, we do uh, a different thing where we, we strip you naked and have you bend over and show us what's in your asshole. You know, it's like, mm. uh, th- I, I mean, I guarantee you that there was stuff like that. Uh, and in probably less vulgar situations where it's like they were totally precluded essentially from practicing uh, black Muslimism. Uh, and so if the, if the prison made any type of accommodation that allowed that to theoretically occur almost, you know, I'm, I'm certain that uh, probably the prison would continue to, to be able to do that uh absent uh, some really activist judge or something. Um, Anyway, so what does happen in 1969, um, there is this judge, Constance Baker, who is actually the first uh, black woman appointed to the, uh, on a federal court in the United States. This is 1969, it's the first black federal judge. Um, She ordered Sostre's immediate release from solitary confinement, because he'd been stuck in there, I think, at that point for a year. Uh, awarded him thirteen thousand uh, dollars, thirty-five dollars for each of the uh, three hundred and seventy-two days he spent uh, in in isolation. Holy shit! A whole thirty-five dollars a day. That's uh, that's uh, what a. Uh, I wonder how they came up with that number. Uh, um. Yeah. And th- and this is by the way, this is like the best it gets. This is like when yeah. you have the first black, the first black judge who's. Yeah. Uh, really sympathetic. If you read her opinion, it's like very sympathetic to him, and it's still like yeah, thirty-five a day. I mean, which I, I know thirty-five bucks was more at that time, but uh, it's still uh, pretty clearly a remarkably low amount of money for being tortured. Um, so he, uh, after that happens in nineteen sixty-nine, he writes the this document we're going to be discussing, titled again "The New Prisoner," um, around sometime in like nineteen seventy-two. It occurs after the Attica prison uprising. So the Attica prison uprising, where Sostre, I believe, was present, um, that happens in September of 1971. Um, For those uninitiated with that, uh, basically, I think, the largest prison revolt ever in the United States. Uh, And it was, uh, you know, prisoners organized. They were seeking better living conditions, political rights, a lot of the stuff that... Sostre was advocating for working towards um, and there there ends up being this massive prison revolt 43 people die uh, during this prison revolt 33 of them are inmates 10 of them are correctional officers or employees however uh, that says 43 people dead 
the subsequent investigation determined that at Attica, um, 39 of those 43 people were killed by law enforcement uh, who uh, were essentially firing as they tried to retake control of the prison. Uh, so it's not as though these prisoners, uh, the reportedly lawless ones, it's not as though they were the ones doing the majority of the killing. It was actually, quote, law enforcement. Jo- that, Joe, uh, are you telling me cops shoot first and ask questions later? I, I don't believe it. Uh, not our uh-huh. boys in blue. <laughs> they they walk up to you and shake your hand and say, how can I help? Uh-huh. You know, that's, that's how yeah. they work. Yeah, and... Uh, you can't necessarily expect that if the uh, if the inmates take over the prison that they're gonna uh, walk up and shake your, shake their hand and and the cops <laughs> are going to uh, you know kiss them goodnight afterwards. But uh, it, it clearly you, you can just see by the way that played out mm-hmm. uh, with with ultimately law enforcement committing most of the violence, how that's going to have a pretty serious effect on the political consciousness of. I'm sure every person who is an inmate there, uh, who's seeing uh, seeing what what happens when prisoners basically become politically conscious, law enforcement in order to shut it down commits fu- a, a remarkable amount of violence. Yeah, the the state has monopoly on violence, right? It's the only one that that can commit violence mm-hmm. without impunity, you know, uh, without being uh, questioned. Um, Mm -hmm. Just two years after the Attica uh, prison uprising in December of 1973, Amnesty International put Sostra on its, quote, prisoner of conscience list, stating, quote, we became convinced that Martin Sostra has been the victim of an international miscarriage of justice because of his political beliefs, not his crimes. In addition to numerous defense committees in New York State, a committee of uh, a committee to free Martin Sostre, made up of prominent citizens, joined in an effort to publicize Sostre's case and petition the New York governor for his release. On December 7, 1975, Russian Nobel Peace Laureate Andrei Shakrov attended. Uh, I'm sorry, added his name to the clemency appeal. The governor of New York granted Sostre clemency on Christmas Eve of 1975. Sostre was released from prison in February 1976. So uh, this is the last time a Nobel Peace Laureate uh, was worth a damn. <laughs> <So> <laughs> they, they usually do their good work before the prize is what I'm getting at. Uh-huh. Rarely does after getting the... I mean, Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize. So I, I was going to say, I, <laughs> I've not seen uh, Obama adding his name to any petitions to release uh, black radical uh, <laughs> black radical prisoners in recent, uh, recent memory. Um, so that's 1976. So he did serve essentially another uh, basically nine years. He's arrested in July of 1967 he goes back to prison until 1976 for uh, what again is a, is a bullshit charge. It's it's a it's a politically motivated prosecution and imprisonment and uh, you know abuse within prison. Um, after he leaves prison, he becomes an aide to a New York State Assemblywoman named Marie Runyon. Um, she he marry he gets married. He has a couple of sons. Um, 
he continues his activism. Uh, he shifts into tenant rights for a while. Uh, during this time, understandably, he reports to his relatives that he feels very much like uh, targeted by police and is very concerned about essentially a repeat of what occurred in 1967. Mm. Uh, his son, his son describes to journalists later that uh, the whole family was constantly under the belief that their uh, their home was tapped by the police. Uh, they would tear things apart looking for evidence of that, looking for wires, etc. Um, so that's the kind of life he's living in the, the late 70s, early 80s. Um, he is, you know, like I said, he's a tenants' rights advocate. Uh, his advocacy is perhaps a little complicated by the fact that uh, he ended up managing an apartment building, and in 1984, he gets uh, involved in an altercation with uh, a tenant that he's trying to evict. Uh and during this altercation, So Straight shoots uh, shoots the tenant, um, and then uh, flees. So uh, he's gone for two years. Apparently, comes back and is arrested, um, allegedly in the the New York Law Library or Law School, the, the library of the New York Law School in Manhattan. Um, so that's he's arrested again. Um, for a shooting that I, I think is undisputed that he did, but he's acquitted, actually, in 1987. He says he acted in self-defense um, as he was apparently in some type of See, Joe, the system works. No problem. By 1987, <laughs> everything was fixed. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of <laughs> Club Well, by, by, by 1987, if you're a, a landlord trying to, uh, convict you, trying to evict your tenant and you fucking shoot him, then you get off on self-defense. In 1967, if you're running a radical bookstore uh, and there are riots, they throw you in jail for uh, bullshit drug charges for 30 or 40 That's years. what I call progress. Um, you know, yeah. that's the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so okay so we already said that he died in 2015 um but he was 92 years old so he lived till he was 92 um apparently toward the end of his life he was not especially public he kept to himself and even uh when he died his family did not announce that publicly they they kept it uh, mm. fairly quiet so he, the, the end of his life was much less uh public than than the the middle of his life so that's uh, those are all the sort of like I guess major events in Martin Sostra's life. Um, super fascinating, interesting man. And one last word about him before we move on to the manifesto itself. In an interview for Frame Up, a 1974 documentary about. Him. 